At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Sports have never really been my thing. Uh, I, I do not play sports or uh, watch any type of sports. Um, I, I think I, I just don't understand the competitive drive. Um, I mean, I understand competitive drive. I have competitive drive in other aspects and areas of my life, but it's that competitive drive that's connected with sports um, that, that I don't really understand. It's like, you're, you run faster than me. Okay, great, you win, you know. Um, I guess that'll come in handy if we're ever chased by a bear. Um, I just I don't understand that that type of uh, of competitive drive, and so I don't really get sports. But there was a day uh, when I played football. Now you're already laughing. Um, <laughs> I haven't even got at the punchline yet. You guys are already laughing. <clears throat> um, I say a day when I played football because that's about how long I played. Um, you know, uh, we started the, the practices, and, and I went to a couple of those, and uh, you, you kind of begin just by running the drills. You know, there's a lot of running, you know, a lot of back and forth type thing, and, and um, you know, so that, that was fine. I didn't have any problem with that. Running the drills was fine, but, but then the practices kind of got um, ratcheted up a notch uh, when you kind of start practice tackling. So it's no longer just like running plays and running around the field, but now you're, you're actually tackling, and so... There I was, uh, you know, uh, sixth grade me or however old I was, and, and they, they put you on this line, you know, like, so you're standing there, there's a bunch of guys here, and like, there's a line, and then there's like a bunch of other guys, and they just say, down, set, hut, and you're just like, supposed to tackle the guy in front of you, and that was, that was how it went. So across from me, um, they went and found the largest sixth grader on the planet, um, and, and I mean, this, this guy, in my memory anyway, was huge, like Guinness Book of World Records, huge. This guy's a, a giant, so there I am, and, and you know, I'm looking at this guy, and I, I've got a choice to make. You know, I can, um, I can basically just stand there like this and just get crushed by this guy uh, when they yell down, set, hut, or I can, you know, like really, like, go big or go home, you know, and so I, I opted for the, the go big or go home, and, and, you know, so I'm standing there, they're getting ready to yell down, set, hut, I'm looking this guy in the eye, you know, up here, and and, um, you know, I'm like, I'm just, I'm going to tear this guy's head off. Here I go, down set hut. I go to, you know, tear this guy's head off. And his plan, I guess, was a little bit different because I was a smaller guy. He goes down like this, and I go up like this, which means his helmet hits me directly in the stomach. Now, throwing up by yourself is humiliating. But throwing up uh, in front of all of your friends in the middle of a football field uh, is even more humiliating, which is exactly what I did. Puked right there on the field. So my plan to go big or go home 
I actually did both. <laughs> I went big and then I went home uh, because I was totally and, and completely humiliated. Now, you know, later on in life, I became a musician because I figured out the reason that middle school and high school guys play sports is to impress girls and musicians did that without all of the tackling and vomiting. But that is my story of great humiliation, shamed, right? I, I wasn't big enough. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't fast enough. I couldn't take the hit like the other guys could. And so I, I puked on the field like everybody was looking at me as I'm like, you know, there, there it is. There's my lunch, everyone. This was amazing. And so I, I left. I was, I was totally humiliated and, and ashamed. And, and this morning, I want to ask you a question. I wonder if you have ever been humiliated. I wonder if, if you've ever been filled with shame. Now, what I just shared was, was a silly story. You know, like, so, so I'm not still, like, you know, racked with, with shame and humiliation about that. I mean, that, you know, I was a kid. That was a, a silly example, a silly uh, story. Though that, that moment doesn't, you know, continue to come back and haunt me um, to, to this day. But, but there are times in my life when I have felt deep humiliation and deep shame. Sometimes we feel this way because it's something someone has done to us. Other times it's things that we have done to ourselves. There are other times in our life when people um, have mocked us, when people have hurt us. There have been times in my life when people have mocked me and hurt me and abused me, and this, is, this has humiliated me and, and caused me shame. There, there have been plenty of other times in my life where I have done things to humiliate myself. I shamed myself. I, I did things I never thought I would do. I said things I never thought I would say. I went to places I never thought I would go to, and I shamed myself. Deep shame. And so the reason this morning that I shared this silly example of my shame and humiliation is because that type of deep shame and deep humiliation is oftentimes too painful to think about, let alone even talk about or share with a crowd of people. That, that type of shame is, is hidden. It's under the surface. We feel it. It's there, but we don't like to think about it, and we don't like to talk about it but it's reality. It's, it's a part of the human experience. It's a part of what all of us have gone through. We've all done things, said things, experienced things, whether we've humiliated ourselves or someone else has humiliated us. And deep inside of us is this lurking pain that is associated with shame. So church family, what are we to do with our shame? What, what, what do we do with this emotion that, that's connected to it? Well, we, we have a couple of options, don't we? Option one, what are we to do with my shame? Well, I can pretend it doesn't exist. I can ignore it. When, when I'm reminded of the things that I've done or the things that I've said that make me feel shame, I, I, I just ignore it altogether. I cover it up with hobbies. I pile on Netflix. I keep my phone in front of me so I never have to think about anything ever. I just continue to distract myself so that the shame that I'm feeling, I just pretend it doesn't exist. I mean, how, how many of us just go through our days with the screen in front of our face? Wake up in the morning with your phone. You, you watch TV. You go to work or you sit in front of a computer. You get home with the screen in front of you. You go to sleep with the screen in front of you, distracting yourself from shame. Here's another thing you can do with your shame. You can justify it. You can come up with excuses why that person said that to you. You can come up with excuses why that person did this to you. 
You can excuse yourself. Well, if anyone else were in that particular situation, they would have done the same thing. So you can ignore it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can justify it. Or three, and this is an option that a lot of people take up. Because pretending that it doesn't exist or trying to justify it, we know at the end of the day, those two things are insufficient. They don't work. And so you just let it eat eat you up inside. You let the negative self-talk take over. You say things to yourself like, I'm dirty, I'm defiled. Who will ever want me now? If only they knew the real me, they would never love me. You let it eat you up inside. And as a result of this, it negatively affects every other relationship that you have. The problem with these three options is, one, they're terrible. Two, uh, they're incredibly unhealthy. And three, they're unsustainable. I mean, with, with this shame that we carry, every single person in this room carries some amount of shame, and so you can only pretend it doesn't exist for so long before you realize it's there. You can only justify it to yourself for so long before you realize that all of your excuses that you've told yourself are just, they're not going to cut it. And so then it starts to eat you up inside, and you realize, yeah, these things are terrible. What, what am I to do with this? And, and then you're in this place where you're unhealthy in your relationships, and it's affecting everything in your life. So what are we to do with our shame? Today in our text, we find ourselves at the crux of human history. This is the the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. This is the most painful and torturous death ever to be in existence. It is an excruciating way to die. As, as a matter of fact, the word excruciating from the Latin means from the cross. That word ex is, is in, in Latin it means out of or from and excruciating. That, that's, that's that word crucify or cross. So next time you say it's excruciating, remember that. It means that word means from the Latin from the cross. This one's an excruciating and terribly painful way to die. But listen to this. This is not the focus of this passage. I mean, we, we saw the Passion of the Christ film, and the focus of that film was to get you as close to the blood and the gore as you possibly could so you could see the pain of the death that Jesus experienced. But today in our text, the focus is not on the pain of his death. Rather, it's on his shame and it's on his humiliation. Just look at, at verse 24. Just let your eyes go to verse 24. Verse 24 says this, And they crucified him. That's it. It doesn't go into any further detail. It does not elaborate. It it, it doesn't say, and they uh, attached the Roman crossbar to the upward post, and they nailed six-inch spikes into his hands and his feet, and the blood flowed out, and they lifted him into place as Jesus hung, pressing up on the nails of his feet and, and his hands so that he might gasp for air, and he hung and bled. It doesn't say any of that. In the most plain and stark and simple way, verse 24 says, and they crucified him. Because the pain of it, the physical suffering of it, is not the focus of this text. It's not. The the focus of this text is the mockery. The the focus of this text is the shame. And the focus of it all is the humiliation of it. So here's what I want us to see this morning. If you're taking notes, through Jesus' humiliation on the cross, he takes our shame. What do I do with my shame? Well, I don't pretend it doesn't exist. What do I do with my shame? Well, I don't try to justify it. What do I do with my shame? I don't just let it eat me up inside. I take 
that shame and I give it to Jesus. I give my shame to Jesus. This, this whole scene of him being mocked and, and reviled and spit upon and beaten and, and this whole humiliating scene that we see go down is all so that we can realize Jesus has taken on that shame. Jesus has taken on that humiliation so that we don't have to experience. We give our shame over to him. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put him in it. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. I want you to see this picture in verse 16. It, it says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace. I wonder if you're envisioning uh, Jesus, you know, with his hands tied, maybe a little black eye, you know, just kind of being led away. If that's it, you don't understand the picture at all. You see, uh, after, after a sleepless night in the garden, Jesus has been severely beaten by the Sanhedrin and by the temple guards. After that, Pilate has had him scourged, this terrible, torturous uh, ordeal where um, his muscles and skin and flesh was literally ripped open. This bloody mess of a man is who they led away, who these soldiers begin to play with like a cat plays with a mouse. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Now, this battalion uh, would have been up to 600 men. His humiliation and the shame that they pile on him was not in front of one or two people. But, but they gathered together as a many people, this great crowd of people just piling on the humiliation and the shame of it as more and more people began to see this spectacle take place as they mocked him, as they beat him, as they tortured him. And they took this purple cloak. Purple, obviously, the symbol of um, royalty. Again, what's the charge that the Romans have against him? Well, he said he was a king, and so they decide to give him this mock inauguration of a king. Again, that's, that's the whole irony of the picture, isn't it? He, he really is the king. He really does have a crown. He really is holding a scepter. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but uh, the other gospel accounts let us know that not only does he have a cloak and a crown, but they put a reed in his hand for, for a scepter. So, so the picture is complete of this mock Inauguration, and they put on the purple cloak and the crown of thorns. They twist together this crown of thorns. Uh, if you've ever, uh, if you're a documentary nerd like I am, you you love to watch um, documentaries, uh, especially those about Israel and and that whole uh, Palestine and that area. You'll know that the thorn bushes there are insane. I mean, the, the spikes are like three to six inches long. This would have been the crown uh, of thorns that they <laughs> twisted together and put on his head as a crowd of up to 600 men gathered 
Can you see him there? Can you see Jesus knelt there being completely and totally humiliated? Can you, can you see the crown of thorns that they placed on his head? I wonder if, if those of us who have been raised in the church, those of us who grew up in the South, I wonder if the significance of the crown of thorns has, has left us. If, if we look at the crown of thorns and say, yeah, that's what they put on Jesus' head, or, or if we realize the, what, what is being communicated to us by the soldiers twisting this crown of thorns and putting it on his head, I wonder if we remember back to the garden. I wonder if we remember back to what took place there when, when Adam and Eve um, ate the fruit and, and they, were, they were cursed. Do you remember, church family? Do, do you remember that back in, in Genesis? We'll, just, we'll go there. Genesis chapter 3. So, so Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. Um, they, they are cursed. And, and God goes and he speaks to the serpent and he tells the serpent his curse. He, he then speaks to Eve and he tells Eve her curse. And then he speaks to Adam and he says, and he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, man, generally speaking, that's a good thing to do. But not this case, because she was encouraging him to disobey God, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18 Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is the curse that was put onto Adam as our federal head, as the leader of the human race. The curse was given to him, thorns and thistles, and there is Christ taking onto himself Adam's curse. Taking onto himself what Adam should have bore, what Adam put on all of us, Jesus takes the shame of it. Again, what did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? What's the first thing they did? They clothed themselves, they covered themselves, and they hid. Why? Because they were filled with shame. Because they had humiliated themselves. And so they covered and they hid. And the curse, the, the result of it was they were cursed with thorns and thistles. And here Jesus is taking on himself this curse. He puts the, the shame and the humiliation on himself. He takes it off of us and puts it onto himself. And the great news is, is, is that the way was blocked for us. But on that day when Jesus takes the thorns onto himself, um, uh, God essentially retires the cherubim. Now, now you're looking at me like you don't remember. Look at verse 34, uh, 24. Verse 24 in, in Genesis chapter 3. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Meaning, when they sinned, they were cursed with the thorns. They were kicked out of the garden, out of the presence of God, out of the peace of God. And there is this angel. Okay, so when it says cherubim, don't think chubby baby. I mean, this, this is a warrior with a flaming sword. Okay, like way cooler than Star Wars swords. Like this sword is amazing. And he is guarding the way, blocking the way, so that we are, we are blocked off, cut off from the presence of God. And so when Jesus takes that crown of thorn, takes that curse, that shame, that humiliation onto himself. There is a decree gone out through all of heaven where, where God says, hey, angel, stand down. Let my people come back to me. Let my people come close to me. Let my children come close to me because, because their shame has been eradicated by the crown of thorns. Amen. That's the significance. If you're taking notes, Jesus takes on the crown of thorns 
a symbol of Adam's curse, therefore ridding us of our shame and reconciling us to God. That is why Jesus endures this shame. For some of you, shame has kept you away. You you think that the angel is still there guarding the way. You think that 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 shame that you're carrying is is the reason for for you to stay away. And so some of us are emotionally distant. Some of us are physically distant. Some of us are spiritually distant. Why? Because of shame. It's difficult to open this book and read it because we're reminded of our shame. It's difficult to go to God in prayer because we're reminded of our shame, whether that shame be something that someone else did to us or a way that we've shamed ourselves. It's difficult to go to community groups because we're reminded of our shame. It's difficult to come to Sunday services. And so because we're reminded of that pain, we distance ourselves. But church family, Jesus endured all of this shame to bring us to himself, to draw us near, to draw us into the presence of God. And so if if that's you this morning, if you have been far off, if you've been distant emotionally, physically, spiritually, if you've been distant because of the feeling of shame, know that Jesus has made the way. Jesus has opened the pathway. Jesus has taken the crown of thorns onto himself, this this symbol of curse, this symbol of shame, this symbol of humiliation. He's taken it on himself so that the way would be open so that we could come to him, so that we could go freely into the presence of the Lord. Their mockery was not over with the crown of thorns. It says this, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him and they begin to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Again, hail, this idea of long live the king knowing that they're about to go crucify him. They say, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. You can imagine that as these Roman soldiers are doing this, one, one soldier is trying to outdo the other in their mockery of him. I mean, again, get this picture in your mind. They're, they're, they're using the most coarse and profane language of the day, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're not saying, hey, you nerd, hey, dork. You know, they're, they're going as far as they can go in their, in their mockery. This is coarse. This is extreme, the things they're saying to him and, and how they're saying it. Look at this. They continue to add to the shame. They spit on him. Again, Jesus has continually been spit upon through this whole process, and they knelt down in homage, and listen to this. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. So to get the purple cloak on him, what did they first do? It says they gave him back his clothes. So there he stands in front of 600 other men and is stripped naked. They stripped him naked in front of a crowd. Imagine the shame and the humiliation. 
They cover him for a moment. They lay this purple cloak on this ripped open, torn open back. They lay this purple cloak, and so he has a little bit of shield for uh, his, his body, his private parts that were exposed. He has a, a little bit of shield. But, but after they beat him and mock him and kneel down before him, they take that from him so he's naked and exposed again. He's stripped completely naked, again, adding to the humiliation and to the shame. And for those of you who have been sexually exploited, Jesus knows what you've experienced. I imagine the halls of heaven, while all of this is happening, the the angels looking on in horror and begging to go down and put an end to it, but the Father allows this. The Father allows this. And and so the, the natural question is, why? Why this level of humiliation? I mean, wasn't the beating and the mocking enough? I mean, why allow him to be stripped naked in front of a crowd several times, exposed. Well, I mean, what, why this level of deep humiliation? Church family, even this, him being stripped, is a part of God's design plan because not a moment of his humiliation was unintentional. Not a moment of his shaming what God was not a part of or God was not going to use. If you're taking notes, Jot this down. Jesus was physically stripped naked so we could be spiritually clothed with righteousness. You see, shame is, it's like an old rag that we wear. This humiliation, this shame that we feel, it's like an old rag that's draped around our neck. It's, it's a dirty garment. It's dingy. It's stained. It's filthy. It's, it's soiled and heavy. The shame that we wear, it just weighs us down. And here Jesus is saying to us, take off that shame. Jesus proclaims to us, take off that shame, take off that garment, that humiliation that weighs you down. And he allows himself to be stripped and then hands us his clothes of righteousness so that we might be clothed in the righteousness of God or so that we might have right standing. John Calvin, the great reformer, says it this way. The evangelists, uh, he he means those who uh, wrote the gospels, The evangelists portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes that we may know the wealth gained for us by his nakedness, for it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped that we should appear freely with the angels in the garments of his righteousness and fullness of all good things. Shame makes us want to hide Shame makes us want to withdraw. But here, by Jesus being stripped, he is stripped so that we might be clothed, wrapped in his garments of righteousness. Not righteousness that that we have come up with on our own. Not our good deeds. But he clothes us so that as we enter into the throne room of God's grace, when he looks upon us, he doesn't see the dirty, the filthy, the stained He sees Jesus' clothes of righteousness. That's good news, church family. That's good news. There's Jesus on his way. He's been beaten three times now by the Sanhedrin, by the temple guards. He's been scourged by Pilate, beaten by the Roman soldiers, And he's on his way, carrying his own crossbar, 
This would have been a large piece of wood weighing up to 100 pounds. It would have been just the cross section. They, they made the prisoners carry that to the place of execution, and they would attach the cross section to the pole before it was lifted up into place. And here is Jesus carrying his cross to his place of crucifixion. Verse 21. And when they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. In this section, we're introduced to uh, this man, Simon of Cyrene, and it says they compelled a passerby. They essentially forced this guy to help Jesus carry his cross. I mean, again, how shameful this spectacle is and, and, you know, Nobody would really want to help him, and so the Roman soldiers force Jesus to do it. They make this guy, Simon of Cyrene, do it, and, and so we're assuming that Mark knows that his readers have no idea who Simon of Cyrene is, and so this designation is given to him. Who is Simon? Well, he's the father of Alex and Rufus, and so we say, okay, great, who is Alex and Rufus? Right, because we don't know. But but Mark's original readers would have known um, who this guy Simon is because they apparently know Alex and Rufus. And so, if we kind of extrapolate just a little bit, just go with me here. Um, this book, this particular book, is written to the church at Rome. So if we go back and we think about the book of Romans. In the last chapter, chapter 16, there's this long list of names where Paul is saying, hey, give greetings to this person, give greetings to this person, and one of the names listed there is Rufus. So it's possible, again, we're assuming here, but I think it's good speculation to assume that this experience with Simon had a lasting impact on him as he carried this man's cross to his crucifixion. He then became a believer and passed his faith on to his son, Rufus, who then became uh, someone who is prominent in the church of, of Rome. Now, here's what we can see um, from this text. Here's what is not speculation, is that what is happening here is incredibly humiliating for Christ. You see, men were supposed to carry their cross themselves. They were supposed to be physically strong enough Right? That's, that's a part of the deal. You're supposed to you know, take the medicine like a man. That, that, that's what's supposed to happen. But Jesus here is too weak. He can't do it. Of course, this is totally understandable from our perspective. I mean, he, he's, he's been beaten three times. He, he's gone through all of course. Of course, he doesn't make it like the rest of them. <coughs> Jesus here is humiliated because he is too weak and not strong enough, not manly enough to carry his own cross. Here in the text, it says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but, but he did not take it. Now, this wine mixed with myrrh, uh, this is a primitive narcotic offered uh, to people undergoing crucifixion to dull the pain. Now, there's, 
won't go into all of it. There's lots of confusion about this. I mean, again, who is the they? The soldiers have been pretty terrible to him, so why would they offer him this type of narcotic to dull the pain? So many scholars believe that the they that's implied here is actually the women that were following. They offered Jesus this wine to help him dull the pain. What is certain is that Jesus refuses um, this and does not take it. First off, Jesus has already said that he was not going to drink wine until he entered into his kingdom, and so he refuses the wine. In addition, uh, Jesus wants to give himself over to the will of God fully conscious. Again, think of all of the sayings, the seven sayings from the cross that are precious to us. Think about the thief who um, ends up believing on Christ. What if Jesus were unconscious and unable to speak to him So Jesus refuses. Look again at verse 24 and the stark nature of it, the lack of detail and focus on the physical pain. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments. It was against the law for Roman citizens to be crucified. It was too shameful. It was too shameful of a thing. Women were never crucified. Again, it was too humiliating and too brutal. This crucifixion was a punishment reserved for slaves, for violent criminals, and for insurrectionists. Crucifixion was done in the most public of places to have maximum impact. They would find the busiest roads to display the bodies. You see, the Romans used this for political power to show people what would happen to them if they messed with Rome. The victims of crucifixion would not die quickly. Now, Jesus is the exception, again, because of the level of his beatings. Most crucifixion victims lasted days on the cross. Jesus dies in a matter of hours because of uh, the brutality which he endured before his crucifixion. But victims of crucifixion usually did not die quickly. You would die from exposure, exhaustion, asphyxia, meaning like as you hang there, you can't breathe. And so you have to literally pull yourself up after being nailed in the hands, pull yourself up to get enough space so that you can get a breath of air. So victims of crucifixion would die from exposure, exhaustion, asphyxia, or heart failure, or a combination thereof. It was humiliating and a shameful thing to be crucified. This is why everyone thought it was crazy when the early Christians adopted the cross as their symbol. I mean, go back and read history. When, when Christians start saying, hey, we're Christians, and the cross is our symbol, people are going, gross. I mean, that is disgusting and humiliating. The, the Roman historian Cicero said that good Roman citizens should never even speak the word crucifixion. It was too shameful and too gross. I mean, ju- just imagine if, if children today walked around with, with symbols of, of an electric chair or a symbol of a needle, which, which would be used for the lethal injection, and we said, hey, this, this is our symbol. People would say, that's weird and gross and shameful. But that's exactly what the Christians adopted as their, as their symbol. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified. They, they, were, they were telling people this. They were preaching about the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross. You have, you have to understand, for, for us, it's normal. We've been indoctrinated in this. We've been told this. But as this idea expanded out of Jerusalem and throughout all of Rome, I mean, th- this was crazy. Uh, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The, the Jews believe, you know, they, they believe their Old Testament, which says, cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. And so there's no way the Messiah could have been crucified in their minds. 
In addition, the Gentiles, the, the, these Romans believed in these big powerful gods. Zeus, right, with the thunderbolt and stuff. You know, Poseidon, they, they believed in these big powerful gods. And those big powerful gods would never be crucified. They would never endure this much shame and this much humiliation. It, it was too crazy for them. And if you thought the humiliation for Jesus was over, it's not. Mocked by the soldiers with the robe and the crown of thorns and the staff and having to get help to carry his own cross to his place of crucifixion. Being crucified, nailed, stripped naked again and put on the cross. And as he hangs there, they continue to heap shame and humiliation on Christ, look at verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. More humiliation. More guilt by association, right? That there is the sinless Son of God with two robbers. Of course, fulfilling Isaiah 53, which states that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him. They derided him. This, this bloody mess of a man hung on a cross. People walk by and they mock him and shame him, make fun of him. Again, using the most coarse language they can muster. Wagging their heads. Right? Just, just walking by and going... Wagging their heads and saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Friends, if Jesus would have come down from the cross and saved himself, we would never be saved. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Again, Mark here could have just said they hung him on the cross and everybody made fun of him. And, and everyone mocked him. Done. Mark likes brevity anyway. But he doesn't say that. He goes through this list of everybody who walked by, they mocked him. Oh, the chief priests, they had one last chance to get a dig in before Jesus died. And so the chief priests show up and they mock him and they shame him. Oh, and the guys that were crucified with him, they mocked him too. They shamed him too. They humiliated him too. Now, now we know from the other accounts that one of the others uh, on the cross ends up with Jesus in paradise. But they mocked him too. This heaping on of more shame and more humiliation. Listen to this, friends. At any moment, Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels to destroy them all. He, he, he could have, I mean, just, he's God, right? He could have sent, you know, a, a, a pack of bears, you know, with chainsaws and machine guns. I mean, just, you name it, he could have made that happen and killed them all. In an, oh, oh, you think this is fun? You're going to make fun of me? All right, here we go. Uh, bring on the bears. So the question that we must ask ourselves is this. 
If someone has the power, if Jesus had the power to, to end the whole thing right then, to call down the angels with the flaming swords, if he had the power to do it, yet he doesn't do it, the question is why? Why does he endure so much shame? Why does he endure so much humiliation? I mean, we just walk through this text. It's just, it heaps it on. It piles it on. It continues on and on with more shame and more humiliation. The truth is Jesus endures to identify with us in our shame. This is why Jesus does this. He does it to identify with us, us lowly, shame-filled sinners. He does it to identify with us the shame that other people have heaped upon you and the shame that you have brought onto yourself. Church family, I want to tell you this morning, doctrine is incredibly important. Doctrine and deep theology is incredibly important. It affects how we think about ourselves and it affects our day-to-day lives. Because if you understand the doctrine of expiation, it changes everything. Now that's a big, fun, fancy word that you can impress your friends with. Here's the definition. Expiation is the cleansing work of Christ done for us on the cross where he washes us of sins committed against us and sins committed by us. Do you understand how that changes how I view the world? Do you understand how this doctrine changes my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with everyone else around me when I understand the doctrine of expiation, that I am not who I was. I am not what someone has done to me. Do you hear me, church family? You are not what someone has done to you. You are not what you have done to yourself, but you are what Christ has done for you. He has cleansed you of the sins that have been committed against you. You see, the the Old Testament talks about it in this way. When someone commits a sin against you, they've not only defiled themselves, but they've defiled you in a way. This is why people who were sexually abused, they didn't do anything, but they still feel dirty. And so Jesus' blood on the cross, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross, is he cleanses us of the sins that have been committed against us. But it goes even further than that because Jesus' blood on the cross, this expiation or this getting rid of, cleanses us of the shame and humiliation that we've brought on ourselves. This is why Jesus heaps humiliation onto himself again and again and again. Just listen to 1 John 1.7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son. Listen to this cleanses us from all sin. Cleansed from all sin. Washed clean. This is the good news of the cross. As we look at this bloody mess of a man, led here, led there, mocked, beaten, stripped, too weak to carry his own cross, crucified, mocked and reviled by person after person after person, Jesus endures all of that. Why? So that we could give him our shame. When it comes to my shame, I don't ignore it, pretend like it's not there. When it comes to my shame, I don't try to justify it. I don't let it eat me up inside. But when I feel shame, I preach to myself the gospel. The gospel that says, my shame 
was put on Christ on the cross and was crucified with him there. Church family, be set free from shame today. Amen. In Jesus' name, let Gospel Community Church be set free from shame because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.